Thank you, Nell. My Bible's open to John chapter 3. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, if you pass that to the center aisle, we would love to gather those and we'll pray for you this week. Well, this is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent means coming. For Christians, it's a time to set aside um, our, our times of worship to remember the first coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, it was predicted by the prophets, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And Jesus was born, he came to Bethlehem's manger, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, a substitutionary death. Uh, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and he's coming back again. So every Christmas celebration ought to be a kickstart for us or a reminder to us that he's coming back. He's coming again. And we are to be a people filled with hope. In fact, the, the term used in the New Testament for the second coming among believers is blessed hope. Blessed hope. He is our blessed hope. Well, for this Advent celebration this year, I, I just was really led to John 3.16. You mean you're going to spend four Sundays on that one verse? I'm going to try. Uh, because what I'm thinking, you're thinking is that's a verse for beginners, new believers. They need to know that. And what I'm wanting to hold up to us this, this morning and the next uh, few Sundays is this, this is for every believer for us to really ponder afresh and anew what God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, let's say it, shall we? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What a glorious sum of the Gospel. What a statement that is. And we understand from this verse in an economy of words, 24 words in the ESV, why John 3.16 is without a doubt the most uh, often mem memorized and cherished ver verses in the Bible. Millions have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ from this simple declaration. Indeed, it's a great summary of the gospel spoken by Jesus Christ himself. And while this single verse contains right at two dozen words, each word seems to carry an intense urgency to it. Would you think with me for a moment? There is a God for God. There's a God, a living, eternal being who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all the wonderful attributes that are given to us in Scripture He's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he's sovereign, he's merciful, he's love, he's kind, he's wrath, he's righteous, he's just, and on and on it goes. There is a God, and this God loves a rebel world, a rebel creation. That's us. When you read the the, the word world in the Gospel of John, it's describing a rebel humanity and system that's opposed to God and His order. 
and rule. So there's a God who loves a rebel world, which began in the garden when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sending the human race into misery. This God has a son. He has a son. When you think of Christianity, it's right for you to think that God is one God, three persons. He is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Here in John 3.16, there is a God and He has a Son. And we know from the beginning of John's Gospel, where he, he gives in the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what was that Word that became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. And as we continue on with John 3.16, you and I are called to believe in Him and trust in all that He has done, that God has loved in this way, that He sent, He gave, He sent His only Son. Also, we learn from John 3.16, there's a perishing I don't know if you picked that up on the first reading or thought very deeply about John 3.16, but there's a perishing that is forever. And that's the subject of this morning's message, which we'll get to in just one moment. But he goes on to say, eternal life, whoever believes in him shall not, should not perish, but have everlasting eternal life. And this is living forever. It is the gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this gift is to whoever will believe. Like you, this morning, could receive this gift into your life this morning. And maybe you've heard it 10,000 times. But maybe this morning the Spirit of God would quicken your own heart and you would be among those who ever believe. God, love, the world, the Son of God, faith, believing, perishing forever, living forever. It doesn't get any more practical than that with regard to what's real and what you and I should give our hearts to understanding this. While John 3.16, I would hasten to say, may be the most familiar verse in all of Scripture, it's also one of the most abused, I think, and least understood. How could something so simple be misunderstood? It doesn't say everything that we need to know. And some may push back right away. What I'm speaking of is this, follow me down this trail. Early in my pastoral ministry, I had um, a man in our church, not this one, who came up to me and said, you know, uh, Brother Jim, John 3.16 is all I need. That's it. That's all I need. Well, brother, if that was all you needed, that's all God would have given you. But he's given us a Bible that unfolds truths that we need to wrestle and struggle and seek to understand. 
and so John 3.16, I think, is used erroneously in this way, that it seems to be a trump card against every other doctrine, and just so long as you speak of the love of God, that's all you need to talk about. But that's not all that's in the Bible. And that's not all that Jesus taught. And so this text can be used to foster doctrines that are out of balance or just plain wrong, seeing the love of God like a liberal fairness doctrine where he treats everyone the same. He doesn't treat everyone the same. Your experience dictates that. He treats everyone the same, which is not what the Bible teaches, and that's not what Jesus taught. They claim the verse proves that God loves everyone exactly the same and that he is infinitely mercy and merciful. And if John 3.16 renders meaningless all the biblical warnings of judgment, we've misunderstood it. The immediate context is John 3, and it begins with Jesus talking to Nicodemus of his need to be born again. And he talks about the mystery of the Spirit of God moving like the wind. I heard one sermon entitled, The Free Will of the, of the Wind. As God, God's Spirit moves in this world, convicting us of sin and bringing about a miracle we could never pull off on our own. Namely, regeneration. To be regenerated by the Spirit. But later in this chapter, in verse 18, he who does not believe has been judged already, Jesus taught. Because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So why would God choose to love finite, fallen, sinful human beings at the cost of his own son's life? That should cause us to worship this morning. Why didn't God just write us all off as wretched sinners and choose to save no one? Which he would be just to do. But he has shown his love in this way. That God has sent forth His Son, the Son of His love. The Son, His eternal Son, has sent Him into this world. And I think of the moments at His baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration where they heard heaven speak, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. And so God's redemption makes even the angels gasp. And through His grace, those who believe on Him, who are a part of that whosoever will, are brought into God's forever family and we are joint heirs with Christ. He has elevated us to enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We can be absolutely confident that He will uphold no, withhold no good thing from us. Listen to Romans 8.32, which has been called the solid logic of heaven. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? <laughs> if, he w- if he didn't hold back his son, why would we think he would hold back any good thing from us? Why don't we just run to him this morning? And say, Lord Jesus, all I am and hope to be, I'm, I'm yours. I bow before you and receive this wonderful grace gift that you've given to us. So this glorious message of, from this one verse should be proclaimed from the housetop. I think it's excellent and 
those exchanges you have in everyday life, whether it's the waitress or the cashier or somebody in passing to share John 3.16 with them. It's a great sum of what God has done for us. And while this verse is a wonderful sum of the gospel, there are glorious and weighty truths that need to be considered in working out what we believe. There's wonderful things here and there's wonderful things that aren't here. Predestination and election's not here. And I would shoot the arrow over the bow because in our ship called Romans, we're heading to chapter eight and chapter nine where it's right there. So it's not here in John 3, 6. Justification and sanctification is not here. The Holy Spirit's not in John 3, 16. Well, he's in the chapter, but he's not in John 3, 16. The extent of the atonement's not here. So the second coming's not here. So there, there are things that are not here, but there's some wonderful things that are here, and I'm wanting to hold that up for our joy. So we may say to those that we come across, we may say to every human being, God loves you, and this is how he loves you. He gave his son to die so that you would believe your sins would be forgiven and you would have eternal life. That is what the love of God means and promises and does in John 3.16. And that's why this verse has been so blessed of God through the centuries. The sinners high and low and rich and poor. That you would come and taste and see that the Lord is good. So I want to kind of put my thoughts on four Ps. That's a good preacher thing to do, I think. Four Ps over the next four weeks. The problem, the power, the portal, and the purpose. The problem is this morning. We're in danger of perishing. Come on, pastor, it's Christmas. You want to really talk about hell? It's it's right there in John 3.16. There's a perishing to avoid. And I believe and am convinced that it's understanding the danger of perishing that makes this verse so sweet to us. And then the power, God's love through his son is the only power to save. And then we'll look at the portal. How do I receive this incredible promise and love? And this work of God is received through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And the purpose is that we might live life as it's meant to be abundant and eternal. So perishing the problem. Left to ourselves, we're perishing. So we need to understand in a biblical framework how we view the world that every person born into this world with a biblical understanding is born in need of a savior. And without a saving relationship with the God who created all things, they're on a wide and broad road that leads to destruction. This is highly controversial. But we're not interested in testing the truth with our finger in the air. Which way is the wind blowing? Our our job as believers in Christ, those holding to these doctrines, stand on this truth and hold this up in a world that shows little interest in it. But nevertheless, is is the way to light and life. So why should I be concerned about perishing? Why should I be concerned about perishing? 
Well, because it describes the greatest loss you can ever know. Jesus described perishing as outer darkness where there's gnashing of teeth and there's no comfort at all. He uses the same word to describe eternal life with eternal punishment in, John, in Matthew, 15, Matthew 25, excuse me. It's life that does not end and it's perishing and judgment that does not end. To be eternally separated from God because of sin is at the heart of perishing. And it's this world's story. So this word perishing in John 3.16 means to destroy or to cause to perish. It, it's used of, of persons um, uh, put to death, caused to perish. It's spoken of physical death. Uh, I believe it was Paul in uh, Acts 27 that referred to perishing in the shipwreck. But it, it's spoken of eternal death. And that's the context here in John 3.16. It's spoken of eternal death, future punishment, exclusion from Messiah's kingdom. In this sense, it has the meaning to die. This eternal death is called the second death in Revelation 20. The second death, eternal death. The New Testament makes it clear that physical and eternal death are to be distinguished. Jesus said in John 8.21, he said to them again, I'm going away that you will seek me and you will die in your sin. He's speaking to the religious leaders in John, in, in John chapter 8. You will die in your sin. And where I'm going, you cannot come. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Who talks like that? Jesus said to the religious people of his day, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. You will perish. Nothing's changed. Jesus hasn't changed. The conditions of the gospel haven't changed. When Jesus came to the scene of Lazarus and he spoke to grieving Martha, he said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall live even though he dies. There's a life beyond dying in this world. In fact, that's the picture of eternal life. When a sinner repents of their sins and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, they pass from death to life. And in the living of their life, now they come to a point where, and God knows in his book, Psalm 139 verse 16 says, God knows in his book the day you will die in this world. He's in charge of it. And that should bring a comfort to you, unless you don't know him. But there's coming a day where you and I, where he will say, Jim Law, this is the last day I have for you. And I will breathe my last. And I will die. Physically. And what matters at that moment is how am I related to Him? Do I know Him? Have I been born again to the Spirit? Is Jesus Christ my soul's anchor because of what He has done for me? And because at that moment of death, I will either be ushered into the presence of the Lord 
or I will perish in my sins. And I'm glad to tell you by witness of God's Word and the Spirit within me, I'm going to be with Him. That is my blessed hope. I pray it is yours. For I do not take for granted or assume that in the gathering of God's people that everybody's right with Him. That is our profession. That is our confession. That is what we, we praise Him for, our redemption in Christ. But it's possible to sit in a pew Sunday after Sunday and be lost as a goose. So we preach John 3.16, so that wouldn't be true of you. And we're praying that God would do a work in your heart that you may come to see and cherish this verse and this promise and all the promises of God. So at that moment of death, the believer goes into the presence of the Lord. The unbeliever, the wrath of God abides on them. There's a perishing. There's no hope given to somebody who dies in their sins of ever being able to respond to the gospel upon death. Nowhere in the Bible is that given. Oh, don't worry about it. You live for yourself now. There's a, there's a back door down the road later. There, there's none of that. There's an urgency to respond to these claims now. In Revelation 20, it speaks of the second death. Those who perish, those who are perishing means those who are exposed to eternal death. So I think that's a pretty significant reason for you and I to be concerned about perishing. Are you perishing? As you take a long look at your short life, where are you with Jesus Christ? Not only is it urgent for us to think about it, but there's another question I want to ask this morning. Why is Christ the deciding factor on whether you perish or not? Here's another rub. (laughs) Perishing in hell, the whole doctrine of eternal punishment. People will always hate that. You can understand why. It's not a pleasant topic. It should never be used in a joke. It's just far too easy to go to hell. So why is Christ the determining factor? Why is he the the determining factor, the deciding factor on whether I perish or not? What I do with Jesus Christ and his claims, why is that the deciding factor? I uh, have had the joy this semester of teaching at Grace Bible Theological Seminary in Conway, Arkansas, and uh, am teaching the, the course Historical Books, which is Joshua through Esther. And I've just enjoyed meeting these seminary students, and we've been giving it our best and working through that major chunk of Scripture. And assigned in the course is, uh, is a book I came across called, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God by Paul Copen. And he does uh, some interaction with the new atheists that... Uh, over the last 20 years, have made quite a splash in the cultural conversation about theology, about God, about life, about belief systems. And he mentions Richard Dawkins, who states that God is obsessed with his own superiority over rival gods. What an arrogant God he is. And Copen goes on to refute this by stating that God's desire, 
the desire to be worshipped is not only what's appropriate, but it, what, it's what's best for us. When God forbids idols and speaks of judgment for those who practice idolatry, that is for our good, that we would see Him and enjoy Him not only now, but forever, and that His promises are indeed sweet to the believer. He also makes the argument that God, by His very nature, is humble and meek, not egotistical. He argues this by pointing out that God is triune, which means each person is is the trihead, and they're delighting not necessarily in themselves, but in each other. That's why perfect unity is seen in the Trinity. We see God's humility in the fact that He has lowered Himself to become human and to, and to serve. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. He addresses that Copen does, that Paul dying or Christ dying the most humiliating and shameful death in our place is an excellent demonstration of his selflessness. So the short answer is because God establishes the conditions on how we will relate to him. He's the creator and we're not. And that's a huge part of understanding human depravity, that we're not in charge. And what's concerning to me is the belief system makeup of the evangelical church in our culture right now. Several months ago, Ligonier Ministry in cooperation with Lifeway did a survey of evangelicals. And evangelicals are basically defined as those who believe the Bible as authoritative and that it's very important for me to personally uh, to encourage others to trust in Jesus and that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove my penalty for sin these common basic beliefs of Christianity through the centuries. And it was very troubling just reading the responses of many evangelicals on the exclusivity of Christ, meaning that Jesus is the only way. And what it indicates is that many in the church are, are more influenced by philosophy and the norms of the culture than they are by the Word of God. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's begin the discussion there. That verse should be repeated often. That our, it's not bigotry when we say that. It really is, we're wanting to stand on the rock that won't move. Not on the fleeting desires of culture that's all over the map. And one of the reasons we see chaos around us is people are doing what, are right, what is right in their own eyes all the time. And so this exclusivity of Christ is even bleeding in to those who may be a part, who are parts of churches where they have historic confessions of faith that speak about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. And yet a, a large section of them are saying that, you know, there are many ways to God If somebody's sincere in their religion, but sincerity is dangerous because you can be sincerely wrong. And you don't want to be wrong about your soul. So what I'm holding up to you is a truth claim that will be true now, was true 2,000 years ago, will be true as long as life is on this planet. 
And to hold this up to you is God acting in the history of humanity in such a way that you can be rightly related to your, your, your creator. And it's not a walk through the cafeteria, you picking and choosing what you think is best for your life. It's coming and standing on the rock of Jesus Christ. And to say, Lord, the things you've said, if they're true, I need, I need you. That's what I need. I need you. I believe that you're the way, you're the truth, and you're the life. And there is no other way to the Father except through you. Perishing. This is such a, a grim picture. It's, it's, it's all the way through the Bible. At the time of Noah, the Lord said, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. In Leviticus 26, And you shall perish among the nations if you break covenant with me, says the Lord. In number 17, which is following the Korah rebellion, where leaders in Israel rose up against Moses and and rebelled against uh, his leadership, and God opened the earth and swallowed them up along with their families. And Moses gathered 12 staffs from the tribes of Israel. And this is a record of of uh, Israel's uh, uh, rebellion against Aaron's leadership. And Aaron's rod of the 12 rods budded, signifying that he was God's choice to lead as priest. And after that, the people said to Moses, behold, we perish, we are undone. We are all undone. At a climactic moment in the story of Esther, where God had placed her in that position to be an advocate for her people, the Jews. It says in chapter 4, verse 16, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, nights or night or day. And I and the young women will also fast. And then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. In this case, in a physical sense. But nevertheless, feeling the weight of perishing, Esther put her life on the line in sacrifice. So is the God of the Bible, is he a moral monster? How could we ever accuse him of that when we look at John 3.16? For God so loved the world. He loved the world in this way, in this way, that he sent his only son, that by believing in him, we should have eternal life. So is it biblical to talk about perishing? Is it beneficial to talk about perishing? I don't think it's uh, something we can avoid. It's something you and I need to think about. What hope do I have of, es- of escaping that? If, it, if hell is real, what hope do I have of es- escaping that? It's an incredible love. C.S. Lewis wrote, Sin is man saying to God throughout his life, go away and leave me alone. Hell is God finally saying to man, you may have your wish. It is God's leaving man to himself as he has chosen. What a demonstration of love that God would come to us as we do a survey of our life 
What am I trusting in to get me beyond the grave? Right now, as I sit in this pew, am I perishing? Or am I alive to God through Jesus Christ? Charlie Peace, a criminal in England, on the day he was taken to be executed, listened to a minister read the word of God, and when he found out he was reading about heaven and hell, he looked at the preacher and said, Sir, if I believed what you and the church of God say, and even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it all on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living, worthwhile living just to save one soul from eternal hell like that. I'm also reminded whenever we speak of hell here in eternal judgment, we don't relish it. It comes up in the text. We're hit with it all the time in the Bible. And I'm reminded on this first Sunday of Advent when we're talking about hope. <laughs> Why would you preach a message like this? Like the evangelist and faithful to, being faithful to the gospel stood at the back of the church and was chewed out by a lady in the congregation. You know, I come here to church to be comforted, to be filled with hope. Listening to you, you sound like a fire alarm. Maybe because there's a fire. So, are you among the whoever? For years, there was a man who wore a multicolored clown wig. You guys remember him? He was, he was at virtually every sporting event. He'd be behind the goalpost and he'd hold up a sign, John 3.16. He had that multicolored wig on. You'd see him in, uh, watching a golf tournament. <laughs> he'd be up in, the, up in the gallery holding a John 3.16. Baseball games, basketball games. He'd be right behind the goalpost where you see when they would go to shoot a free throw, there he is, John 3.16. I don't know how fruitful his ministry was, but it sure did popularize John 3.16. But to be sure, John 3.16 is not a gimmick or a religious slogan. It's a message of redemption for those who are in trouble. It is God's message that you should respond to right now by believing in Jesus Christ and following him. And saying, Lord, be the foundation of my soul. He will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. Would you bow with me in prayer as our praise team comes? Jared and the team come this morning. And as we hold up this promise of scripture and think about why Jesus came to this world 2,000 years ago, that what we're saying in this gathering is that we are among the number who believe that he is the son of God and that by believing we have life in his name. And that we're to extend that offer to others, this good news to others, that God's love is documented and that he sent his son to die for sins, your sins. Would you call out to him right now? Would you come to terms with, there's a perishing. You can dismiss it. You can say that's an antiquated religion. We're progressive now. We're moving on to greater things. Look at what man can do. 
There's never been a generation of human beings without sin. Certainly not this one. And so we're holding up what God has done through Christ. And by receiving him, you really come to understand why Christmas is a time of hope for sinners like us. You come to him now by faith. In the open arms of faith, say, Lord, I believe in you. Help me to grow in my understanding of your great love and grace. Lord, as we close out this service, we want it to be a time of surrender to you and your call on our life. I pray the spirit of the living God would blow like the wind in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.